Welcome to The Two Testaments, a guided journey through Scripture with leading experts on the Bible, hosted by Ronnie Cosman and Will Kynes. Subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts or at thetwotestaments.com, where you can also donate to support our work. Follow us on Twitter at the number two testaments on Facebook or Instagram. Welcome to the Two Testaments, a guided journey through Scripture. I'm Will Kynes. And I'm Ronnie Cosman. In this episode, we're looking at Matthew chapters 24 and 25, where Jesus gives the Olivet Discourse. Here, Jesus discusses a coming destruction of the temple in Jerusalem, the coming of the Son of Man. He tells some parables, including the parables of the bridesmaids and of the talents. And then he describes that famous image of the Son of Man separating the sheep and the goats when he comes to judge. We're joined by Dr. Anders Runison. Dr. Anders Runison is currently Dean and Professor of New Testament at the University of Oslo. Uh, before that, he was a professor in the Department of Religious Studies at McMaster University, which is actually where I first met uh, Anders when I was doing my master's degree there. Uh, now, Anders has written and published like in a wide array of things. He's a leading expert on synagogues. He's written on Matthew. Um, and he's just released a book on Paul uh, very recently. So he's wide-ranging in his expertise. Um, and... Uh, just for the purposes of our conversation, he's, he co-edited a book with Daniel Gertner, uh, Matthew Within Judaism, Israel and the Nations in the First Gospel. Uh, but he's also authored this book, uh, Divine Wrath and Salvation in Matthew, the Narrative World of the First Gospel. So given this passage, mm-hmm. we're talking a lot about divine wrath and judgment. <laughs> it's particularly fitting that we talk to perhaps the leading expert on divine wrath and judgment in Matthew. Yeah, and that leads to a natural question, Anders, which is what first drew you to the book of Matthew, but then particularly this theme of wrath and salvation in the book? Oh, thanks, and, and thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Um, uh, yeah, that's a, that's a good question. I, I, one could say that wrath is fun, but I would not um, uh, <laughs> phrase it like that. Um, actually, um, what really uh, drew me towards that uh theme was I traveled, um, me and my wife, we backpacked around the world um, quite a few years ago. And um, in doing that, we, and mostly in the uh, so-called global south, um, and doing that, um, we encountered basically on a daily basis uh, injustices on a scale that is is hard to really, you know, verbalize. And and then seeing that and and, uh, being... uh, um, a student of New Testament and also Hebrew Bible, um, I figured. So, w- what is God, you know, saying about this, or doing even more so, doing about this? Is is there anything? And I was thinking about the, the prophets of the Hebrew Bible. Um, you know, they are quite clear sometimes uh, about, or often about, uh, divine judgment on on those who abuse and persecute the weak and the vulnerable. So that's actually how it started, and and when I got back um, to then where I did my studies at the University of Lund in Sweden, I I started to investigate that topic of divine wrath and judgment, and 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 I I did so firstly uh, actually uh, Hebrew Bible and the New Testament a little bit wider, and then down to the Gospels uh, just to narrow it down a little bit, uh, and then realizing. Uh, when I did that, that uh, Matthew had a very particular way of doing this, and uh, this theme, 
and and very in almost systematic and very consistent way of of, of presenting uh, thoughts about about this that the other gospels didn't quite have uh, in the same way that made me focus on on the gospel of Matthew. Um, I wonder, uh, you know, a lot of people think about wrath as purely a negative thing, but the way that you just talked about it in the light of injustice in the world, do you see it having positive aspects as well? Very much so. And and this is one of the things, like, if, if, if I were to uh, offer a one-liner, uh, that would be that um, judgment is the gospel, um, that the divine uh, judgment that will be coming is, is the very uh, substance of the gospel uh, of Matthew. And, and you can see this, I think, and, and I'd be happy to talk more about that uh, throughout the entire text. But maybe, uh, and people often don't focus in that way, the Beatitudes. Um, think about divine judgment uh, when reading the Beatitudes, and you'll see how the text kind of changes before your eyes and your uh, appreciation of, of divine wrath and the judgment theme, the final judgment, uh, will sort of um, become clearer, I think, uh, mm. and, a, and a different kind of. But I, I, I will say that uh, when I grew up in Sweden uh, in the 70s and 80s, um, and even in the 90s for that matter, um, most preachers in churches were very careful to stay away from from the topic of divine wrath and judgment because it had been abused so much by preachers and and in different kind of church settings historically so uh, very few people actually touched the topic and, and then uh, I uh, sort of reread the whole thing I think. And it, it did. It did actually uh, irritate me a little bit that that people, preachers, pastors, uh, priests, did not really go into it because it was there in the text. So what do we do with it? That was my question. And then later on, this travel um, sort of helped me uh, to open it up. Great. Could you uh, briefly summarize for us what it is that we encounter here in chapters twenty-four to twenty-five of Matthew? So, yeah, uh, briefly, <laughs> that is tricky to summarize it briefly, but uh, <laughs> it's a lot. Um, but um, if we put it in context of, of the entire gospel, um, the gospel of Matthew is structured, most people would say, and I would agree, uh, in, in five discourses and five narrative sections. Uh, Matthew is a very structured um, author, or the author of Matthew is, is a very structured author. Uh, and so here we find the fifth of those uh, discourses, and very uh, fittingly, it's also then about the final things, about the eschatological future, uh, about how things are going to be from now on um, and until the end, until um, God returns or the Messiah returns, Jesus returns, and uh, that will be this final judgment scene. So this is this is what it starts with, um, and that can then be explained from also looking at chapter twenty-three. The first thing I want to say is that this these discourses uh, they are delivered by Jesus to different audiences. So sometimes it's um, for the disciples and the crowds, 
uh, and sometimes it's only for the disciples. And this one is only for the disciples. And it's uh, in Jerusalem, and, and that sort of sets the scene. Uh, and it, it, is, it comes after uh, Matthew 23, which then sort of pushes this theme of, of the future destruction of the temple. That is, that is where it starts. Um, and then the disciples then ask uh, Jesus, so what are the, is there a sign? What are the signs that all of this will happen in the future? And so the, the, the speech or the discourse or whatever we call it uh, begins with that. Uh, and, and then um, uh, you will have predictions of a lot of suffering, um, grief, and, and also some um, indication of how to survive uh, in, in, in this calamity or these calamities that will sort of um, hit everyone, regardless of whether you're a follower of Jesus or not, uh, everyone will suffer. Um, and then uh, that then into chapter 25 or the end of chapter 24 into tw 25 um, then consists of, of uh, parables uh, that will then, um, how should I put that, uh, describe in more detail uh, what, um, what is at stake and, and precisely what is at stake and also um, what to expect, and what to expect uh, of the from the disciples' part uh, is that they have no idea when this end will come. No one has any idea, so they have to be uh, awake and alert at all times. So uh, we can come back to that passage too. But uh, uh, in this text, um, in these chapters in twenty four, uh, Jesus says that no one knows when. Just that this will come. It will happen. Um, no one knows when. Um, not even the Son. Not even the uh, Jesus himself uh, knows this. Uh, not even the angels, etc. And then follows these uh, parables that explain, so what do we do now? If we don't know um, when this will happen, how are we going to act? Tell us. Uh, and then these parables will then uh, explain that. And, and it all ends in... in 25, 31 to 46, uh, with uh, this very famous uh, sheep and the goats, um, which I think is not really a parable, uh, but right. something else. But we can uh, certainly discuss that. Yeah, I, I was thinking that actually when we when I was uh, writing up a little summary of this thing, I was going to write the parable of the sheep and goats, and then I actually went delete, delete, delete. This is not a parable, but we we do kind of we do kind of have that for some reason in our imaginations that it's a yeah. parable. Yeah, can you elaborate on how these chapters then fit into the gospel as a whole? What role are they playing in the broader gospel? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it's. I think it's uh, the Gospel of Matthew is the first thing I want to say is is a narrative. Uh, this may sound very simple, um, but if you agree that this is a narrative, you have to analyze it as a narrative. It has a beginning, it has a middle, it has the an, an end, and things move on from one point to another, uh, which is really key, I think, because in a story, in a story world, things happen, things develop. Things change, and this is uh, where where chapter twenty four and twenty five comes in as as very important. Um, uh, after things have changed, this will now happen, um, and and whatever governs 
what will happen uh, was not really necessarily the case before uh, earlier in Jesus' ministry or uh, in, in the history of Israel. And if I would like to point to one chapter that changes everything in Matthew and prepares for 24 and 25, that's uh, Matthew 23. This infamous chapter uh, where he is just, it's um, to, well, to be clear, it, 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 it starts like it's, it's full of accusations and, and those that he targets uh, are, are said to be the scribes and the Pharisees. And I say that within quotation marks because it's sort of a, a, a concept that he uses. And it sort of starts very, um, you know, slowly. He's angry, obviously, here. This is a very angry chapter. Uh, and he starts slowly by saying, you know, you should not have, uh, uh, your clothing should be uh, this or that and and uh, and uh, those small things. Don't do like the hypocrites because they need, they want to have, they want to be seen and so on. Um, but uh, then... There's a crescendo of accusations, which are absolutely outrageous and really display like almost an emotional core to Matthew's gospel, um, where, where his anger sort of comes together. Uh, and I think that, um, and, and it sort of leads into this, this ultimate accusation that the so-called scribes and the Pharisees are guilty of shedding of the shedding of all innocent blood from uh, the beginning of the world until now, which is you know, what do you say to that? Like, that's uh, <laughs> that's intense, and and so you can see this. There is something happening in this chapter um, that um, that has an effect, and the effect is is very uh, clearly seen uh, just when uh, when chapter. Uh, 23 is about to end because there is an accusation that innocent blood was spilled close to the altar in the temple itself and this means um, uh, I believe uh, that and others have, have uh, noted this too that what we have here is a pollution of the temple so scholars have debated for a long time is the Jerusalem temple and the temple cult really valid in Matthew or is it not? Uh, is the temple still a, an institution to count on? Can you, you know, is there, um, you know, sacrifices are okay or, um, and, and so on. But, uh, and my view is that yes, the entire gospel from the beginning until chapter 23, the temple is just fine. It's part of the covenant. Uh, it's part of the law. The law regulates atonement, which happens in the temple. And it's just fine. You can see this in the Sermon on the Mount. You can see it elsewhere, too. Uh, but here in 23 is the core which changes things. And it is this, like, spilling of innocent blood uh, to the point where it spills over. It's like a cup that has been filled up too much and now at this very point in history it spills over and this uh, pollutes the temple to the point of no return which means that the temple now uh, in ancient Jewish thought um, God needs to leave uh, because a holy God cannot coexist 
uh, with uh, or exist uh, in a space which is um, impure. And this is sort of why also the temple will be destroyed. Uh, and this leaving of the temple, God needs to leave the temple to leave it to destruction is really important because the temple, and that's the same in, in, in other ancient cults too, um, if a temple is destroyed and the God is still inside, it, it really proves that that God is quite weak. Uh, it's not, it doesn't work uh, with uh, the idea that, uh, in this case, Israel's God would be the most powerful God of all the gods and be really in control of world history, etc. Uh, so God needs to leave uh, the temple before it is destroyed. Uh, and this, um, this theme sort of plays on a theme from the Hebrew Bible uh, and Ezekiel, um, where in chapters 10 and 11, uh, you have um, God leaving the temple very slowly and in phases um, before um, the, t the first temple is about to be destroyed. And, I, um, and interestingly, I think Ma Matthew has patterned his story of Jesus on Ezekiel, because in Ezekiel, the divine presence leaves the temple, transports itself to the, the Mount of Olives. And lo and behold, in Matthew, Jesus leaves, like as if the Shekhinah itself, uh, the temple, and, and moves on to the Mount of Olives, where he has delivers this discourse, starting with the temple is going to be destroyed. So I think, and, and then chapter 24 and 25 comes in there to describe the suffering and this, these horrible things that are going to happen. So that's how I see um, the, the story of Matthew moving from, from initially um, um, being, well, it's about two things, Matthew, really. The Messiah in, in, in Matthew is about two things. The one thing is, one task that he has is, is to teach the correct view of, of the Jewish law, which remains valid uh, eternally. Uh, and the other thing is eventually to provide himself as, as a sacrifice, uh, a tone, atoning sacrifice, as we see in 26, in chapter 26. And, and so if I may just wrap that up, I realize that this was a long answer to a very short question. Uh, but um, if I may wrap that up, that means that the destruction of the temple, and I think this is really important to understand, to understand Matthew, the destruction of the temple and Jesus' death are not related in the way that traditional Christian uh, churches or, or theologies have had it. So the the destruction of the temple is not caused by the death of Jesus. It's exactly the other way around. So it is the fact that the temple is destroyed that forces Jesus to sacrifice himself, to save his people, which is as in 121. Uh, that's his name. He is supposed to save his people uh, from their sins. So if the temple hadn't been destroyed or predicted to be destroyed, then uh, Jesus uh, wouldn't have had to die, which is the logic to Matthew's gospel, which means that 
that chapter 23 explains the whole Jesus event for Matthew. The temple has been um, polluted. Uh, it need God cannot be there anymore. God needs to leave, and the temple needs to be destroyed. And, and then God loves his people to the degree that he sends his, uh, his Messiah, his agent, to, to sacrifice himself, to keep his people alive until the final judgment. It is a little bit... <sighs> When you move from the end of chapter 25, which is this powerful image of the Son of Man and judgment, it's a little surprising to move to 26, and the next thing he says is, so the Son of Man needs to be crucified. Now you, that's not what you would expect, but your explanation there helps put those two things into relation to one another in a logical way. Thank you. Yeah, exactly. And, and, and it, does, it does follow. Um, I think Matthew is very... Like logical, he's, he's not a systematic theologian in the way we think of systematic theologians or theologies, but he is consistent and he has this train of thought that that forms his entire narrative and and make and makes it work. Uh, and also, you know, uh, it also explains some other things in, in Matthew's gospel. And for example, in Jewish Christian um, uh, dialogue, uh, Matthew is is very often. Uh, discussed because it has such harsh words to say about specifically the Pharisees, and and there there are I think there are reasons about that, and I have written about that. But if we look at the narrative world and the logic there, um, well, um, this group that he has formed in his the way he wants to form them uh, is actually accused of um, the destruction of the temple. They are at fault. They are the ones that sort of tip the scale, scales and, and, and forces this to happen, which then forces uh, Jesus to sacrifice himself. So uh, if you see it from that perspective, um, it does explain the harsh tone which uh, Matthew has against the Pharisees, which is, by the way, not at all uh, in Luke. Uh, Luke Acts has a very different view of the much more like a round character, like uh, there are good and bad uh, Pharisees, but Matthew's Pharisees are all bad. And that's sort of unique. Hmm. Now, what for you is the most difficult thing to understand in these two chapters? What is most challenging to you that you've just been puzzling over as you've been writing about uh, chapters 24 and 25? <laughs> Well, <laughs> there are many things. My answer number one is a lot. Uh, and, but if I have to, if I have to pinpoint, like if I have to pick something um, uh, that I've really, um, that is a very difficult passage. It is about um, this um, this thing uh, that happens in, in 2415, which is then... Um, uh, and I can uh, read it here. This will be the Revised Standard Version, uh, New Revised Standard Version, NRSV. Um, so, and, and there it says, So when you see the desolating sacrilege standing in the holy place, as was spoken of by the prophet Daniel, let the reader understand. Then those <laughs> in Judea uh, must flee to the mountains, etc. Uh, mm -hmm. That is a tricky passage. What does it mean? And then, as if Matthew knew that people were going to, like, you know, what does he say? He says, let the reader understand. So, uh, yeah. So I think that's, uh, that's a really tricky passage. 
I think. Right. Well, we'll come back to that in, a, in not too long from now. But let's yep. now turn to uh, Matthew 24. So Jesus uh, leaves the temple, and his disciples point out the buildings. And Jesus then asks them, do you see all these things? Truly, I tell you, not one stone here will be left on another. Everyone will be thrown down. The disciples then ask him, when will this happen? And what will be the sign of your coming at the end of the age? Uh, so that's in verses 3 to 4. What do the disciples have in mind here first by Jesus' coming? And what is the end of the age they are asking about? That's another very tricky passage because here it seems like, you know, uh, it, it seems like they understand that Jesus is going to go away and then come back. But that's not really what we see elsewhere in the gospel because they are so surprised uh, and, and scared at the end when he, he does die. Uh, so uh, this return thing is something that is a little bit strange to have in there. Um, and it's, it's, it's hard to, to reconstruct meaning from that. Um, but they obviously, this is how Matthew uh, phrases it, uh, and and if you continue to read, it's it's basically that, um, well, Matthew and the reader will know that Jesus will be coming back uh, to judge, uh, uh, to judge uh, the living and the dead, I almost said, but, but uh, judge all people and the nations, specifically. Uh, and, and then the kingdom uh, will be initiated. So that is the ultimate goal of the whole Jesus event. It is to initiate the kingdom. No, so the message in Matthew is not really, this sounds radical perhaps, but the message is not so much Jesus as it is the kingdom. Um, okay. The kingdom is the key. Uh, and then later on in history, uh, you know, Jesus becomes the message and the kingdom uh, sort of falls into the background. If you look at, at uh, the different confessions, uh, you know, the Nicene Confession and so on. So the kingdom doesn't, the apostolic confession, the kingdom doesn't really figure there. Um, but the focus is exclusively on Jesus. But in the Gospels and in Matthew also, and specifically the kingdom, uh, kingdom of heaven, as Matthew has it most often, um, is the message. That is what's going to happen. And Jesus will, is the one who will make this happen. And that's what's supposed to happen at the end of the age. Is that right? That's right. And, and so that is really what, at the end of the age, um, this will then be, the world will change. It will be, I think we will have to avoid thinking about um, the end of the age or the world to come as some sort of, um, how should I put that, uh, spiritual, non-physical, whatever, um, existence uh, when we look at Matthew. Like the early Jesus movement had quite a few different ways of understanding what will happen. And Matthew's is more concrete it's a transformation, uh, a rebirth of the world, as it also says in chapter 19, at the, at the rebirth of the world, basically. So that's what he has right. in mind. Yeah. Yeah. Now, how, does, how do you see Jesus responding to their question about the sign of Jesus' coming, right? They asked for a sign. Um, and I find this personally very difficult uh, when I teach it, actually, I tend to lean on the side of saying that Jesus is actually not giving them a sign. 
that there's no sign that can anticipate Jesus's coming because he'll he'll say like uh, things like so there's there's going to be great suffering and if anyone says to you look here is the Messiah or there he is do not believe it for false messiahs and false prophets will appear and produce great signs and wonders to lead astray if possible even the elect take note. I have told you beforehand. So if they say to you, look, he, he is in the wilderness, do not go out. Um, and then he'll go on, he'll then go on to say uh, that then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven. Okay, so first, don't look for a sign. Don't ask for a sign. And then he's going to talk about like the sun is going to be darkened. The moon uh, will not give its light. Stars will fall from heaven. Powers of heaven will be shaken. We can get into that language as well. But then he says, then the sign of the Son of Man will appear. So now he does give them a sign, or does he? Well, like, what, what's going on here? <laughs> that, yeah. Um, Matthew is a fascinating text <laughs> when it comes to that. I, I think I have a, a few different answers to that question. The, fir the first one would be uh, that, um, well, don't go look for signs. Uh, because it will be absolutely obvious when it happens you'll it's in your yeah. faith like it, it's just all over the place so okay. if you go looking for for uh signs in, in like or details or things that happen that way or this way or people who are saying a or b or try to pinpoint exactly the date and the the, the time when it's going to happen that's what matthew rejects and and then um because it's it's not that Nothing will happen. Something will happen, but it will be absolutely obvious. And 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 there, I want to go back to what I mentioned earlier a little bit in in, in the second part of that answer. Uh, to, um, to if we look at how Jesus treats people or people's questions when they request um, uh, a sign, he's usually you know uh, you're asking for a sign, but you will not get a sign except for the sign of Jonah, for example. And, and that's a sort of a standard question or a standard answer. Um, but then uh, I think it's it's instructive to look at who is asking the question about the signs. And it is in one way or the other, it's the Pharisees together with one group or another, uh, always. And and those, and then th there will be no uh, response. But his disciples here are the only listeners to this um, to this uh, discourse. So this changes the dynamic a little bit. And it's the same thing with parables, that uh, he explains, Jesus explains parables for those who are with him, his closest, uh, but not so much to the outsiders. And and that's a, a bit of a... So one could possibly say that uh, the um, disciples or, or those who follow Jesus are privy to information that other people don't have. And the parables and the understanding of the parables would be one thing. And this discourse, which is only for the disciple, will reveal some more things, uh, but only to the disciples. Well, let me press a little bit because I, I mean, I, I want to, I want, I think I like this reading where, okay, it's going to be so obvious when he comes, right? I, there's something about that that I like. But I'm, I still, there are things in the text where, I, I, you know, I'm reading things like, um, but about that day and hour, no one knows, right? Not Neither the angels of heaven nor the son, but only the father. Um, and then he'll go on in verse 42, keep awake, therefore, you do not know on what day your Lord is coming, right? So it almost... Uh, 
you know, this is why I, I kind of feel like I want to press on he's not answering their question. <laughs> he's, he's kind of saying, you know what, you're asking for a sign and that the sign that you get is the appearance of the Son of Man. Like there's no way to anticipate the kind of like forecast, like a weather forecaster. Uh, oh, we can we can see the rustling in the wind and know that X is going to happen. It almost it almost as I read it, it seems that when you can't anticipate it, it's too late. He's already here. But doesn't Jesus use the weather as a, an analogy for this? But is that in Matthew? I, I can't recall. But. Well, he does talk. I mean, Anders, help us out here. Because then he does, yeah. to your point, he does talk about, like, um, verse 29, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from heaven and the powers of heaven will be shaken. And there are other things in here. Yeah, no, uh, you know, if stars fall from heaven and sun and the moon sort of loses or lose their light, that's obvious. That's in your face. Something's actually yeah. happening. Uh, so, uh, but uh, you're right that uh, uh, Jesus, in, the Matthean Jesus, actually speaks also about um, weather phenomena. Like, uh, so you're asking for this, um, but you know what to expect from weather and you don't understand what's happening right in front of your eyes that sort of language is is in different in in a different part of of the gospel so um there is this sort of um the sign thing uh is very important not only to matthew also to other gospels but but for for matthew it is important uh, but the only I, I would i would say like the sign of jonah uh, reoccurs uh, a, couple of t- a couple of times. So that is obviously important. So the sign of Jonah, what is that? Uh, I think the, uh, the the common explanation here is is correct, that that has to do with, uh, uh, with the death and, and then eventual resurrection of Jesus uh, is what he refers to. And that response is given also to others, not only the disciples. So uh, it's, it is as if uh, the death and resurrection will be like a signal that people should be able to, to understand that something is now happening. Um, but um, yeah. back to 24, 25, um, these, I think what you said there is, is spot on, uh, Ronnie, uh, and that is that the, um, when it happens, it's already too late. Uh, and I think that's exactly what Matthew wants to communicate also in chapter 25. It is that, you know, you you have to live as if this is going to happen to you in any second, like tonight, uh, in an hour, uh, in half an hour, five minutes. That is sort of the right. perspective. And that sort of forces, and, and the pedagogy of that is then, sort of expounded on in, in chapter 25 um, what so what then if if this is what it is uh, what should we do well then that forces you to be attentive like completely and and take care of your life as if you will stand before your judge uh, tomorrow at midnight or tomorrow at midnoon like whatever so I think that's uh, that's a, a very crucial point for Matthew. Yeah. Do you want to comment at all on what you take the this 
phenomenon to mean the sun being darkened and the moon not given its light and the stars falling what 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 do you think is going on there what's with that it, it's it sounds to me like <laughs> it's also a difficult question that's my first answer uh, <laughs> but uh, but it, to me it, it it signals or repeats or sort of echoes what we have in chapter 19 where um, where at the um, where Jesus is speaking to his disciples uh, that when at the rebirth of the world you will then be sitting on 12 tr- thrones and then be judging uh, the 12 tribes of Israel etc so but the point is that the world is about to be rebirthed it's it's going to be transformed and I think that is what is signaled by by these references to to the sun and the stars and so on do you think there's is there any cre- like credibility to this idea that um, that what's being signaled here is these are like actually like spiritual powers? Do you see what I'm saying? So when the stars are falling, this is a kind of like uh, scene of like you know angels and you know spiritual forces that are being defeated and thrown down, uh, and that means that the son of I don't know if if that means the son of man has defeated now the kind of uh, celestial beings. I think that's a very interesting way of it's. It's not really obvious from within Matthew's textual world, but if okay. you put that world into a larger world of first-century Judaism and first-century Jesus movement and see a little bit what happens, then that um, that could very well be what some listeners in the first century would have understood that to mean. Uh, and and. Adding to that, I would I would think that uh, well, I should reinforce, and Paula Ferguson has written a lot about, and very good stuff about this, uh, that the uh, the ancient world was just full of gods uh, and demons and all spiritual beings. It was very congested, the whole cosmos. Um, and so, then um, that was the case also for Jews and also for Jesus. It's not like monotheism as we think about it today with just one God uh, did not, that idea did not exist in the same way uh, in antiquity. So um, what we see here then, if there is a rebirth of the world, that means that all the other powers must have been defeated in some sort of way, and they must have been put under the authority of the God of Israel. And so, yes, you can see that happen. You mentioned earlier the abomination of desolation and highlighted that as a very difficult part of this text. Uh, But we're not going to let you escape addressing it for us. (laughs) And, you know, it says let the reader understand. So we're hoping that you can help our listener understand something about what's going on there. So how do you take that passage? Well, uh, yeah. It is, uh, the first answer is, yeah, it is difficult. And the other one, if I would still give it a try uh, uh, to understand it, and many scholars have, have done the same, and, and uh, people end up with uh, somewhat different uh, answers to this question, so I would firstly encourage uh, the listeners uh, to, um, to go to that text and try to figure it out. And uh, helping sort of that happening or a little bit uh, on the way, I can offer one thought, perhaps. And, and, and the first thing would be that I, I think what is referred to here um, is the destruction of the temple. If we assume 
uh, and which was, you know, the Roman invasion and, and so at the first Jewish war uh, in 70 CE. Uh, because Matthew was very likely written uh, after that, and I would think also written in, in the land, in, in the Galilee, uh, which means that people would, in this generation, people would still know about this. They would still know people who died. Everyone knew people who would have died in this war. Uh, and so uh, it's, tra it's trauma, basically. Uh, and, and so this, this passage, I think... Um, reflects the conviction that what Jesus had been talking about, and I, I believe that the historical Jesus did make predictions about this. I don't think it was difficult. Um, whether you approach the text as an atheist or as as a, a Christian or of any other um, denominational sort of, um, belonging, I think one should be able to agree that it is not in all it's not that difficult to predict political events when they are intense and certainly not under occupation uh etc and people have done this uh, all over the place people have people predicted the fall of the soviet union like 20 years before it happened uh and so on and people are today predicting similar things so i think that um the historical jesus might very well have have spoken about the fall of the temple and and there would be traditions in the Jesus material that Matthew receives from this after the fall of the temple. And that's why I think that uh, the year 70 and the fall of the temple becomes in these communities real world evidence of the correctness of these predictions. Uh, and that in turn signals that this is the beginning of the end. This is the beginning of the end. Because the temple, with its uh, um, mechanisms for atonement and sacrifices, etc., are key for for in a Jewish um, ritual world and also theological world, if you use that term, a theo ritual world. One could combine them. So it is a catastrophe uh, for Matthew, and Jesus is the solution to that catastrophe. So. Um, this passage then focuses on that and the fact that he refers to uh, let the reader understand uh, and daniel uh, is is the um, the book of daniel is the reference here uh, it is to me hinting that the meaning needs to combine political as well as religious parameters uh, that this is something that uh, will happen the destruction is is horrific. It will unleash suffering that is ongoing in Matthew's own time, or people have experienced it, and it's going to get even worse before um, before uh, the Messiah returns. So I think that is what that wants to signal. Um, that's my suggestion. Right. So uh, so on your reading, then when uh, when we get to verse thirty four where we read that, truly I tell you, this generation will not pass away until all these things have taken place. So what do these events of the coming of the Son of Man refer to? Like, is this then referring to uh, the destruction of the temple? Is the coming of the Son of Man? And that means it's already kind of, uh, if, if Matthew is writing 
afterwards. It's taken place already, you know, before uh, before his writing. But presumably, as you say, the historical Jesus may have also given these kinds of predictions, and so it would be also forward-looking from that vantage point. Um, but does that mean that a reader of Matthew's gospel is not supposed to take the instructions of... Don't go back into the house right, top. Don't and, go back in the house top, you know, <laughs> to take all these precautions. That That's not meant for the reader of Matthew's gospel then to take as a precaution. It's It was meant from the historical Jesus to his disciples to take as a precaution? How, how, how do you square this away? It's a very good question. I think, I think one has to see it as a continuum. This is the beginning of the end. So it's not the end in and of itself. This, represent, this introduces an age uh, within which, or a period of time, within which everyone, including the disciples, will go through immense suffering. So it, it starts with this cataclysmic event of the destruction of the temple, which triggers this. But the suffering that is then described in the text is not only in the past, but also in the future. So it moves from, from the destruction into uh, a continuation of, of the age until uh, uh, the Messiah will return. And there will be this uh, reckoning uh, and the judgment uh, will be, be uh, initiated, which, which will then set things right. So, so during this, and, and I think this is important, so if, um, if a few cause this immense suffering, uh, and, and Matthew points to some group that he um, caricatures as, uh, for, for these purposes, if this is happening, uh, then how do we survive? What, if, if this group caused this, everybody, it's like war in general. In every, every war is caused by a minority of people, like a tiny, tiny minority. We can see this today uh, also in Europe, obviously, too. Um, it's always the same thing. People at large, the majority, usually do not want to get killed uh, in a war uh, for whatever reason. It takes a minority to make that happen, or a minority to, 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 to make that happen. So these um, disciples of Jesus are victims, just as everybody else. But how do they survive? And I think there is very, one verse there, or two actually, uh, that are very in 24 that are very uh, interesting and that should be kept in mind because they they uh, outline a strategy for survival until the messiah comes and um, i can uh, read them from uh, nrsv perhaps and in 24 uh, 12 to 13 it says and because of the increase of lawlessness the love of many will grow cold, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. So this actually points to, it's interesting to see how Matthew combines love with law. Lawlessness is the very opposite of love. So love is expressed through the Jewish law. That is the point. We see that in chapter 23, verse 23 also. Um, righteousness and and. and it comes as a concept of love. So if you want to survive this period of time, your love must not grow cold. And, and that's also basically a summary of the law, which we have also in, in chapter 22. Uh, when asked, how, how would you, what is the most important in the law? And then we have this uh, uh, 
a double, like love God and love your neighbor. Uh, that's it. Uh, everything else is basically commentary. You mentioned that these descriptions here are both looking backward and forward. And as we get further on in chapter 24, we see it clearly seems to be forward-looking in terms of verses 40 and 41, for example, which say, Then two will be in the field, one will be taken and one will be left. Two women will be grinding meal together and one will be taken and one will be left. Now, you know, in a kind of an American context, there's the influence of the Left Behind series and uh, dispensational ideas about the rapture. Uh, so is that what's being described here? Or what, what does Matthew have in mind with these people seemingly disappearing suddenly? Yeah, that's a that's a fantastic question. Um, I'm not um, so much into the Left Behind series. I must admit, <laughs> so I'm not an expert in that field. So I I may not know the details that might <laughs> hit the spot of this. But um, um, I would say uh, the little that I do know is that what's happening here is is not really what that those more cinematic narratives want to portray. But, but the, the very point is to say, not everyone will make it. And, and that's exactly, and I think um, Matthew is very clear on this. Not everyone will make it. And that means that you have to stay awake. You have to stay alert and you have to uh, not let your love grow cold. Because if you do, uh, you will not be part of, of that uh, kingdom that God is now going to establish through his Messiah after the judgment has been delivered. So I think, yeah. and I think also chapter 25 supports that, uh, that interpretation, that it is about um, the immediate effects of not knowing. You have to stay, um, stay alert. Stay alert and stay alive, isn't that a phrase too? Yeah, the, I mean the language too of being taken of being one will be taken. There, you know, two women will be grinding meal together. One will be taken. One will be left. Being taken doesn't mean being transported up into the <laughs> into the heavens. It means you're you're dead, mm -hmm. right? Because in the context, he's talking also about he br brings Noah as an example in the flood, yeah. right? And so the flood is like a destructive force. <laughs> it's yeah. like you know exactly. So yeah, very much so. Yeah. So we have then in. Three parables that are told in succession. The parable of the faithful and unfaithful slave, the parable of the ten bridesmaids, and then the parable of the talents. What are the major ideas or major point that Matthew's trying to press when he tells these three parables in succession? Yeah, I think, uh, I think it's precisely the point of you do not know when this will happen. So what does that mean? Here, I'll tell you a couple of or three parables, and I'll explain it to you through those parables. I think that's the main message of these parables, is that you have no idea of when this will happen. Your love must not grow cold, because when you least expect it, um, it's going to happen. And this is what these um, parables elaborate on. In different ways, from different angles. Yeah, so let's look at one of those angles in the parable of the talents. So you have the servant, and he says to his master in verses 24 and 25, Master, I knew that you were a harsh man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you did not scatter, so I was afraid. And I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here, 
you have what is yours. So what is how does this get across that kind of message? Why is the this servant hiding the talent in the ground? Why does he so worried about his master being a harsh master? Uh, what's going on here? Of course, the other servants are, they're good, right? They yeah. take the talents and they invest them and they make more money for yeah. their master. But this one's right. burying it in the ground. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, uh, yeah. Um, also, this this text can be read in different ways. I think one way of... of um, uh, of, of doing this uh, is to focus on the, the English word talent, which comes from, from this parable, right? The effect is, do you have talents? Uh, and um, what I think the bottom line is uh, in, this, uh, in this parable, uh, it is that you must not, you must be fearless. Because fear is what actually drives his uh, actions. And that is then not the appropriate uh, uh, posture to have in, in this setting of intense suffering that has been described just before the parables. So um, the fear that this person feels, then that is problematic for Matthew. But then again, there is also another undertone here because sort of the uh, um, the authority if we call the this person that who comes back the owner um, he's sort of calling the bluff a little bit uh, because you knew and still you didn't uh, why and then the fear is combined with a sense of deceit uh, that maybe it was more than that. Maybe uh, maybe it was also like pure um, unwillingness to uh, to engage and do the things that are that have to be done at the end of the age, um, like the other people in the in the parable actually did. And and there I want to I think this parable is also important for Matthew because it it can explain I think. Uh, the very tricky verse in the Sermon on the Mount, in chapter 5, be perfect as uh, your Father in Heaven is perfect. And, like, how is anybody supposed to be, like, how could anybody be perfect? Nobody can be perfect. What does he mean? And so that opens the question, of what is perfection in the eyes of Matthew? And to answer that question, I think it's very profitable to look at this parable and see that these, the two first servants, are given different amounts of, or different talents, if you want to have that in English, and different talents. Um, one gets more, and one gets a little bit less, but they do something with what they have. And that is the point. That is perfection. To sort of fill the measure that you have been given. So there is no perfection in this gospel. It's not an absolute line, but it is is adjusted to the person's ability and that is that is a thought that is very important in matthew i also think it, and it, it's also in in it's in, in jewish um, tradition from the same time it's also in the gospel of luke you can see it namely that um for example in the sacrificial cult um if you if you can't afford this kind of animal well take this instead so you adapt the requirements to the abilities of the people involved. And that is key, I think. 
And I think this parable of the talents really um, uh, takes that as a point of departure for, for making its point of being ready and not being afraid. So in verses 31 through the end of the chapter, we read of what will happen when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him. Uh, <laughs> just to add that bit. Uh, and, and that the nations will be gathered before him. And they're then separated as sheep, right? And, and they're separated from the goats. So we have the sheep and the goats, uh, the sheep on the right hand and the goats at the left. Now, what is the separation of sheep from goats? Is that um, and, and these kinds of uh, animals? Do they signify anything in like ancient Jewish literature, or is this just like something farmers do? They separate sheep from goats. <laughs> the answer to that is yes. <laughs> no, I, I think I think actually um, no. Uh, I think um, what we see here uh, is uh, what. It's a way of speaking that makes sense to people at the time. So if you uh, are a shepherd or if you are, you know, in that setting where you know what shepherds do, um, that probably made sense. Um, you divide them up. But there is usually like a mix of sheep and goats uh, in, in a flock at that time. So, yes, it, it, this word picture, if we call it thus, uh, should probably make sense to people from that perspective. Uh, in... In ancient uh, Jewish thought, you know, you have, um, for example, you have first Enoch talking about uh, the animal ap apocalypse, basically, it's uh, where animals are involved, and but not in this way as in, in Matthew's story. It's in the, the, uh, the animals sort of, a, it's described in, in a very different way. But the scene itself with a judge having a dialogue with uh, the judged, those about to be judged, that also exists in other Jewish texts. So what Matthew, Matthew does here is is to uh, combine different motifs and into something that makes sense for his uh, for his audience. So we talked earlier about wrath and how people like to avoid the idea of wrath, and this is one of those passages where it's prominent and uh, in many ways kind of disturbing, uh, but you're an expert on wrath in Matthew, so we're, we're going to assume that you're willing to talk about it. So uh, here, here's two things I want to bring together here. So on the one hand, we have this image of eternal fire. So it's mentioned in verse 41, uh, and then in verse 46, again, and these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. But combined with that idea of eternal fire, we also have these other kinds of grotesque images in these parables that describe things like in verse 41, when the master returns, he will cut him in pieces and put him with the hypocrites where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Uh, or verses 29 and 30, for to all those who have, more will be given and they will have an abundance. But for those who have nothing, even what they have will be taken away. As for this worthless slave, throw him into the outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So the two questions are related to one another, which is the first is when we talk about things like eternal fire, we're supposed to envision a kind of eternal conscious torment that is being depicted here. And then second, why this grotesque graphic imagery to describe the kind of judgment that is envisioned? 
Now, those are, are uh, very good and, and relevant questions because this kind of language has, has a, a kind of a nasty reception history through the centuries in, in the churches. And so one has to address them, uh, these images of, of total and complete suffering that this, uh, this king or this judge or whatever the parable is, um, landowner, uh, this pain that that this uh, figure inflicts on, and and the problem is here that it's actually is, it, these figures are standing in for God Himself, basically. So it makes it even more sensitive. What kind of God is that? Uh, and there's an article by, if I may refer to to uh, a study uh, published, I think, in 2013 uh, by John Kloppenberg, um, comparing. The violence expressed in the Synoptic Gospels, uh, and and Matthew comes out as the worst uh, in terms of how violent the language is uh, in terms of punishment, and I think that's ab an absolutely correct analysis because Matthew is very concerned with judgment. Uh, but um, the first thing I want to say basically is is that you, these images are a bit over the top and they should not be used uh, hermeneutically uh, today to um, justify any kind of, of violence because that's not what I think they were meant to do. Um, and and then, you know, weeping and gnashing of teeth, that's, that signals to me uh, funerals. Uh, so it's about death. And, and death is the other outcome of that, you know, coming of... of of the final and last judgment before the kingdom. And so what what is communicated is that this is serious business. You need to listen. Uh, this is going to happen. The kingdom is going to come. There will be a final judgment. Uh, and um, uh, you better pay attention. I think that is the message uh, that Matthew wants to communicate. Now, uh, if... Um, if one wants to go into the idea of eternal punishment, like extended into some sort of timeline, like suffering, I think that's um, that has been the case for sure that in the church, um, this has been the interpretation of for a long time. But if you read this within Matthew's own world, uh, there is actually a hint uh, in the text that that could not be um, what Matthew means. And the first thing is that it, the word uh, is ionios, right? It's, it's the age. So it's the fire of the age. Uh, eternal could be there as, as, a, as a, an added um, meaning to, to the age, the fire that sort of defines uh, the situation at the end of the age. Um, but in chapter 10... Um, Matthew, or Jesus, I should say, the Matthean Jesus, is talking to his disciples uh, and trying to encourage them as they are to go out and, and, um, and missionize the message of the kingdom, uh, that do not fear those who can only kill the body, but fear the one who can kill both body and soul. Soma in Greek. Uh, and so that means that, if, that in Matthew's thought world, um, there is something like complete death, that um, the existence 
is extinguished uh, and disappears. And if you're going to try to combine, and if your assumption is that there is some sort of logic to, to how Matthew writes his story and that he is consistent in his thinking, that passage in chapter 10 should probably interpret those um, those passages uh, further down in the gospel, which speaks of, of this fire and, and being thrown out into the fire. But it is, and I, I really think one should take that seriously, this is really uncomfortable language. And, and one should be very careful with it uh, for uh, pastors, specifically, especially pastors, who are responsible for, for uh, interpreting these words to, to their congregations really need to be careful uh, about how this is phrased and focus on the point that Matthew is trying to to convey rather than the nastiness of the descriptions. Right, and so to reiterate the point that Matthew is trying to convey with this, uh, you know, motif of uh, punishment and judgment is to do what? How would you crystallize what he's trying to do with this imagery? Well, yeah, so um, I think... The first thing would be to convey the seriousness of the matter, of the situation. That's very clear. This is life and death for, for Matthew. It's nothing less than that. And the other thing is that, so it, it has, one could say, a pedagogical uh, value for emphasizing that. Uh, but you, one can also uh, see how Matthew in this, particularly in this uh, word picture of, of the sheep and the goats, how, how Matthew... Uh, not only gives this very harsh language, but also offers a way out. And that is uh, for the nations, pantata ethne um, means, I would argue, and many others too, uh, this is the judgment of the nations. Israel is not included in this judgment scene because there's there are other judgment scenes for Israel. Um, but this is for the nations. And for the nations, uh, there are ways out here. Uh, and that goes through um, how they deal with and treat the the weak ones, those who are in jail, those who are naked, those who are thirsty and hungry, etc. And that will then be counted uh, as as fulfillment of of the basic requirements of the Torah, namely to not let your love grow cold and and to be. Uh, to be able to stand then before the judge and, and not having any clue that you have actually been good or bad. And then in this case, uh, say, wow, um, it, it was just a, a, a way for me to live. Uh, and when I saw the suffering, uh, I acted upon it. And, and that is also an important point in this in this. Um, word picture, and that is that if you talk about the criteria of judgment here, this is the the absence of doing, the absence of actions are what is uh, being, uh, being judged here. Uh, so if you have not reacted in this way, then you're being judged uh, or condemned for, for your um, uh, for your basically coldness of heart. 
Well, thank you, Anders, for stepping into the breach and taking on these very difficult issues in Matthew 24 and 25. Uh, we like to end our episodes by asking our guests for a blurb, you know, that genre that biblical scholars have perfected of speaking in high praise about books, but it doesn't have to be about a I book. I should say, by the way, that on yeah. the back of uh, Anders's book, he has blurbs from Terrence Donaldson, who we interviewed, yes. Amy Jill Levine, yes. and Dale Allison. Oh, okay. All, All right. Uh, That's a very two-tested oriented uh, uh, blurb collection there. <laughs> so we interview all those all those individuals uh, in this season on Matthew. Uh, so uh, do you have something that you could recommend for us? Like I said, it doesn't have to be a book. It could be anything that you found helpful or enjoyable recently that our listeners might enjoy as well. Okay. I recommend life. <laughs> if, if you have to choose between death and life, choose life. That's from Deuteronomy, by the way. Uh, there you go. Having said that, actually, I, I do uh, I do have some recommendations um, that uh, that I think are, can be helpful and interesting for for specifically a Two Testaments um, blog listener. Um, and um, if I may, um, not speaking of my own stuff, but uh, even though I am involved in the publication of this um, uh, this journal, which is open access online, it's uh, JJMJS Journal of the Jesus Movement in its Jewish setting. Um, which is um, published um, and distributed worldwide um, without cost for the for the uh, for the reader at all uh, and and uh, the reason why I bring it up is that um, it basically offers a multitude of perspectives on anything that is in the intersection between Judaism and Christianity as these religions develop in the first centuries and this is basically the the only journal I think that does that. Um, mm. So I want to uh, suggest that could be an interesting venue. But if I may, and you can cut this away later on if you want to, but if I may add another book, um, I recently acquired this one, A Comparative Handbook to the Gospels of Matthew and Luke, uh, which is a fascinating, very heavy book where... Um, these texts, Matthew and Luke, um, are compared with Jewish pseudepigrapha, uh, the Qumran scrolls, and rabbinic literature. So you have passages from the Gospels in question, and then you have a lot of, of parallel materials that you can go then uh, to find out more, to, to really try to understand what these texts try to do uh, uh, around the first century as opposed to what they later did uh, in other centuries. So, you, of course, you can never stop with just these passages, but you can get a hint. Uh, well, I go here and read about these uh, other texts, and I will understand Matthew better. Thank you, Anders, for walking us through Matthew chapters 24 through 25 and all the uh, difficult things involved there. And thanks to you who are listening. Um, if you have time to go and to Apple Podcasts and give us your best five-star rating, it may, well, I don't know, Anders, what do you think? Might it help them avert the wrath to come when the Son of Man returns? I mean, I'm not saying that our podcast is the least of the podcasts, but our podcast could use that help and, you know, reaching out to the least of these like that. Um, you know, it's not a, cla a glass of water but a, a, you know a review or sharing the word sure. with someone else there sending in a, uh, this episode to someone who you might know who might need to hear a little bit about the wrath to come i don't know and how that, to escape it yes there exactly uh, it could be helpful <laughs> uh, but thank you so much anders and thank you for listening 
The Two Testaments is produced with support from Sanford University, where Ronnie Cosman and Will Kynes are professors in the Department of Biblical and Religious Studies. Thanks to you, our fellow travelers, who support this journey by donating on our website, thetwotestaments.com. Thanks also to Cam Thomas, Joe Zellner, and the team in the Sanford Faculty Success Center, and our student assistants for their help with production, editing, and promotion.